Those are my favorite kind of songs to sing, ones that make great the name of Jesus, glory and honor and power to him. As we've seen in the book of Revelation, uh, welcome. My name is Braden Rodriguez. I'm our student 1825 pastor here. Uh, thank you so much for, for, for being the, the early risers, right? Coming to 930. You're my kind of people, right? Cut from the same cloth. I love the 930 service. I sit right here. Usually, if you ever need somewhere to sit, come find me. This row is typically wide open. So you come sit with me. Uh, and we, we'd love to have you. Uh, guests, welcome this morning. Uh, again, Braden, uh, thank you so much for being here. We have a resource curated just for you guests this morning. Maybe it's your first time, second time, third, or maybe you've just never even been to this website. You've been going here for seven years, right? Uh, this uh, resource is curated for you. It's called lpguest.com. Here, it's kind of like a one-stop shop for you guests, right? You can come, you can learn more about our church, you can, uh, and namely, get connected, right, uh, to our church. If you go to lpguest.com, uh, there's a portion there where it says uh, guest information card. You can click on that. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're interested in here at our church, uh, and we can get you most uh, uh, meaningfully connected in the quickest way possible uh, if you fill that out. And at the bottom of that guest information card, what you'll see is there's a list of ministries. If you just select one of those, we'll donate $5 in your honor, no strings attached, just to say uh, thank you for being here. And those ministries that are there are uh, not ministries through our church, but out in our community that already love and serve our community. And we just get to partner along with them and the gospel work that they do. So if you wouldn't mind filling that out this morning, it only takes uh, about a minute or so, and, and we would get to uh, connect you after that. And so uh, another housekeeping thing maybe this morning, as you saw Wesley uh, was singing right here, and maybe you've been wondering, hey, like I haven't seen Wesley uh, near as much. Uh, Wesley is, has been a part of our staff for about three years, and he's uh, transitioned to kind of a different uh, role, still in worship, but uh, just looks a little different. So when Wesley was hired here a few years ago, he started part-time here at Delaware, and then the other part of his full-time job here was working with our student ministry uh, and leading worship and, and, and kind of leading the culture in worship for our student ministry, namely at Lewis Center. Uh, for that time being. Well, as our church has grown over the last three years, so have our student ministries, uh, and so has worship in our student ministries. Now, uh, it's not just Lewis Center. We also have worship here at our Delaware campus, and as our other campuses are growing, like Westerville and, and soon-to-be Plain City and Worthington and Mary, and as their groups of students are getting bigger, uh, ultimately, worship and, and what that culture looks like and how they lead and who leads uh, has to fall on someone. And so our church has gotten big enough to where Wesley has gotten to shift full-time into that role, and that's a great problem to have is because the next generation is being poured into. So we can give it up for Wesley. Um, so maybe uh, you'll see him around, uh, but you'll just see him around maybe a little less on Sunday mornings, but we love uh, our worship pastors and, and how they uh, serve our church, and so thank you uh, for Wesley. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 13. That's where the majority of our work is going to be done today, uh, and, it, and, and it is work, right? If you uh, have read uh, in preparation for this week and have read Revelation 13, it is a tall order. Uh, they say, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And that's what we're going to try to do this morning is, is take on this, this big beast, right? Literally, we're going to look at the first and second beast in the book of Revelation 13, and it is quite uh, uh, big, and it is uh, something to, to take down uh, essentially this morning. And so let's, uh, let's lock in. This morning we'll be in Revelation 13. We're going to kind of look at a few other chapters here and there, but again, the main part of it is 
chapters 13. The main thing that we've been looking at in this series is this, is that Revelation provides us a present hope. And I think that is true today, that we're going to have present hope from what Revelation chapter 13 says. But it's not just uh, that. What we've seen, right, is, is, is that this book, right, it is present hope. It's not just a future calendar. But what we're going to see uh, throughout it is that it, it brings a lot of symbolism, right? And a lot of things uh, like uh, prophecy and apocalyptic literature, and, and it's a letter. It's a lot of things all at once. Kale has every week mentioned the three kind of uh, literatures that are in this book uh, that we have to kind of come to grips with. The first is apocalyptic literature. It's full of symbolism, and this passage today is full of it, right? We're going to have to kind of work through the symbolism to, to see that present hope, but I trust that the Lord will do so this morning. And uh, as I was reading some of the commentary, one of the uh, commentators mentioned that Early, uh, early on in uh, the 1900s, right, post-World War II into the Cold War, there were uh, comics uh, drawn and, and put in newspapers of Uncle Sam wrestling a bear, right? It's symbolism, right? We don't think uh, about an old man dressed in red, white, and blue actually fighting a bear. When we look at those comic strips, it's symbolism, right? We see that Uncle Sam, this older gentleman with red, white, and blue on, is representative, symbolic of the United States when the bear was representative of the USSR. No one actually thought that uh, this elderly, white-haired gentleman was fighting actual bears during the Cold War. It was symbolic. What we're going to see today is some symbolism. It's also a letter that it comes and it confronts us in some ways, and it also comforts us. In some ways, we go back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when John is pinning out these letters to the church. And there's some confronting moments for them. He says, hey, change. But then also he comforts and he says, hey, keep on going. Thirdly, we see that it is prophecy. Right, That it is prophecy fulfilled, that the Old Testament kind of points and Jesus points to these moments in Revelation that have already been fulfilled, but then it's also prophecy out. We said it is more about a present hope than it is a future calendar, but there is some sort of future aspect to the book of Revelation, namely when we get to chapters 21 and 22, where we see what the end will look like and that we will get to be with our God forever in his city. So keep all of those things in mind this morning. I'm going to try to catch us up. So Kale preached in 6. I'm going to try to catch us up to 13. So if you, uh, you don't have to go there. But if you were to look at Revelation chapter 7, one of the things you're going to see is this introduction of God's people. It's the 144,000. We'll get into that momentarily. But essentially, this is the representation of God's people as a whole in eternity. It's given a number, and we'll jump into why. But that is what we see in chapter 7, that will hold a lot of value today as we hit 13. Chapters 8 and 9, we see a picture of judgment come. Cale preached on the, the seals being broken in Revelation chapter 6, and then we get to 7 and 8, and we get start seeing trumpets and bowls of wrath. One of, the, one of the professors I had in college as we studied the book of Revelation, one of the things he said is a lot of times what they try to do is, is lay out this 21-step um, process of judgment that God is going to bring, and it's this literal thing that's going to happen. He said, what if it's not like a chronological telling of 21 steps of judgment? What if, what if it was like John standing in the midst of a tornado? And I think Cale alluded to this last week, that it's not this process of, hey, this is it's step one and step two and step three and step four and all the way down to 21. What if it is John standing here looking up and just seeing the things swirl around in one simultaneous moment? And he's just trying to capture images for us. 
I lean that way, but you can read Revelation and kind of work through that uh, on your own. But then we get to chapter 10. In chapter 10, John begins to, it says, eat a scroll. This vivid imagery, he's ingesting the word of God, and it says it's sweet to his mouth, but bitter in his stomach, this message that he's going to have to carry. And oftentimes, as we read through the scriptures, that is how it is. It is sweet to the taste, but then often, as we have to go deliver that message, it seems bitter sometimes, especially when we have to talk about the judgment or the wrath to come. It's sometimes hard to look at a person and say, hey, repent, for the kingdom is coming. There's judgment one day. It is sweet often to us who believe, but bitter as we have to relay it otherwise. And then we hit 11, where these witnesses begin to declare the gospel message. And it says these witnesses are slain. And uh, some commentators believe this is maybe uh, pointing more to the Holy Spirit's witness and sharing and pointing to Jesus. And then we get to 12 through 14. In 12 through 14, many commentators think is the hinge point of the entire book. They find that the major point, uh, many commentators will say, comes from chapter 12 through 14. What is that main point that they talk about coming from 12 and 13? It is this, 12, verse 10 through 12. He said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, being Satan, the dragon. If you read Revelation chapter 12, it'll present Satan as this foe against God. He's, he's come and he's risen up and he's tried to attack God, tried to attack the, the mother of Jesus. He's tried to attack Jesus himself and he's tried to attack the church. But then we get in verse 11. It says, they have overcome that enemy, that Satan, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, what Jesus has done in their life. And... Uh, you get to verse 12, or excuse me, the latter end of verse 11. For they love not their lives even unto death, verse 12. Therefore rejoice. Some commentators think that this is the key verse in the entire book. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. I find a lot of encouragement that if this is the hinge point, right? If chapters 12 through 14 is the hinge point and this is the key thought, 10 through 12 is the key thought of the entire book, what do we glean? What do we glean from this? That we have an enemy who has come, but he's beaten and his time is short. That this enemy has come, yes, and his, he's got a short time here and he is ultimately beaten. We see in verse 11, it says, they have already overcome. By Jesus' blood. That in verse 12, his time is short. If there was a main point, I think, of chapter 13 through 14 or 12 through 14, I think it would be this, is that Satan may come, but Christ is one. And we just sang that victory song, right? That we're fighting a battle that has already been victorious in the name of Jesus. That's what I want to dive into today, and hopefully we glean hope. From chapter 13 is that Satan, yes, he may come against the church, but Christ has ultimately won that victory and we get to live in that. Let's pray before we read chapter 13. Father, we love you. We praise you and we thank you, God. We ask that today as we read your word that the seed 
of your word would take deep root in our hearts. God, that it would produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. God, we ask that it wouldn't be uh, something confusing today, but rather it would be something that gives us hope and light and clarity. Father, what we know not would you teach us, and what we are not would you make us, and what we have not would you give us, all for the sake of your Son, who's our Savior. Amen. Revelation 13, starting in verse 1, all the way down to verse 7. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Let's pause right there. Let's, let's jump into what this first beast is, this beast rising out of the sea. I think ultimately, like we said, this is symbolic of something. But I don't want to, uh, I, I want to try to provide an answer for that, yes, but I, I want to kind of, don't want to stick in what exactly is this beast, right? Because what the commentators think this beast is, is this rising up of governmental and official powers against God's face and to oppress the people of God, right? One of the themes that we get through 12 through 14 is this false trinity, right? We serve God who is one, but he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And what we see in chapter 12 and 13 is this rising up of this false trinity uh, in the dragon, being Satan, this first and second beast out of the sea and out of the land. And this beast is mimicking, I think ultimately what we'll see, he's trying to mimic Jesus. And how is that often brought up? In this time, definitely it would have been governmental and official powers, right? Rome has risen up to power and Nero and all of these emperors are killing Christians, yes. But the reality is, is governmental and official powers do rise and fall. Right before Rome, it was Macedon. Before them, it was Babylon. Before them, it was Persia. And it was all of these other enemies of the Israelites, the ebb and flow in and out of power. There is always a governmental power that will try to rise up in the face of God and flex its power over people, push against the face of God and try to suppress his people. Yes. But I think this beast is a little bit more representative of something as a whole. It's not just governmental powers that rise up and try to oppress the people of God. It's our neighbors. It's social constructs and social movements. And oftentimes it is powers that lie to us in and of ourselves that try to rise up and suppress our, our walk with Christ and push back against others. I think we know it all too well. That it's not just the government. It's not just local officials. It is people trying to tell you, hey, you can't really talk about your faith here because that just makes people uncomfortable. 
It's your neighbor saying, hey, like, that's cool for you, but, like, can you just keep that to yourself? And, again, it's also oftentimes inside of us where we begin to look at God and spit in his face for whatever reason and press back against ourselves or other saints. It's oftentimes rising up to mimic the power of God. If we look at some of the language here at the beginning of chapter 13, what we again see is that this beast is trying to imitate something. Some of the language that is used is that this beast has diadems. It has a mouth like that of a lion. It's given power and authority. It seems to have this mortal wound that was healed on its head. It receives worship. It even has authority over tribes and nations and peoples and languages. What do we see all through Revelation up until this point? That Jesus has diadems and crowns, that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that Jesus has the true power and the authority, that Jesus doesn't just have something like a mortal wound. He was crucified for our sake, real dead, and he rose again. That when worship of Jesus happens, it's not like, oh, who is like the beast? There is no one like Jesus. That often, that is where the worship flows out of. That there is none who, who rival Jesus in the slightest. He's unmatched and he does truly have authority to gather people from all tribes and nations and tongues and languages. And so here's what I think we're trying to get and pull out of Revelation 13 verses 1 through 7. is this, is that there is this beast that will rise up and it will look a lot like Jesus. In many places in our lives, it will look a lot like Jesus. A lot of people will follow that power. A lot of people may even worship that power. And that power may look like it was dead and come back to life. But it is a cheap, cheap imitation of the one who is truly victorious. The one who has overcome and has conquered the enemy. Satan often comes with cheap imitations to try to dissuade us and to trick us from following him, Jesus Listen to what the beast sounds like. When the beast speaks, it's blasphemy and it's haughty, it's proud and arrogant. But when Christ speaks, it is often love and humility. Often we are attracted to power. And we are often attracted to arrogance and pride, especially when it's ourselves. But that is not what Jesus comes and speaks. He speaks love, humility, service. The passage continues on in verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Talking about these people who will follow this false Jesus. These people who will follow these false powers. These idols ultimately. It says they will follow it. But everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. And the book of life of the lamb who, who was slain. If anyone has an ear let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword. The sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Ultimately, what we see is this, is that people will, yes, follow in ways that are not pleasing to God. But what we see here in verse 8 through 10 is this, is that there is people who will follow Jesus. And there's a comforting part in this verse to me. It is that it says that Jesus, God, has this book of life, in which the lamb was slain. And it says, before the foundation of the world was created, there was this book with names in it. So before the foundation of the world, before day one of creation, 
God has set up this book and he knows of those who will follow him. Jesus has had his victory won since before day one. Before he ever said, let the light come in, the world come in, let people come in. He said, I created the plan of salvation for you. Before the foundation of the world, I knew that I would have to send my son to be slain in your place. And he has won his victory since before day one of creation. And that is encouraging to me. Is to know that Jesus is sitting high and lifted up, knowing all things, knowing that the victory is already won. And so we look at the end of verse 10. He says, so endure. Endure in the face of cheap imitations. And have assured faith in the one who has already won the victory. Say that again. Endure in the face of cheap imitations. And have assured faith in the one who has won. That he's already done the work. Yes, Satan may come against us. He may try to dissuade us. But ultimately, Jesus has more power. He has more authority. He has life. And he offers it freely to us. The passage continues on in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even makes fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give uh, breath to the image of the beast so that the images of the beast might even speak. It might cause those who would uh, not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man his number is 666. Here again, we have this parody, this imitation, right? The second beast rises up and it began using similar language out of earlier books of Revelation or earlier chapters of Revelation. We again, this false trinity that rises up, this is the one to mimic the spirit, right? If we have a Jesus who has a Holy Spirit that points back to him and says, hey, look at Jesus, look at what he's done on the cross. So this beast, it says, rises up to point worship back to those false powers. He's saying, hey, I want you to worship idols. Some of the similar phrasing again, horns like a lamb, points to worship of the first beast, performs signs and wonders. It says it even breathes upon the images of the beast. And it says, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free will worship. Just a cheap imitation of the church filled with the spirit. Because what does the spirit do? It says he points back to the worship of the lamb, that the spirit actually does true miracles. And when he breathes upon the image of God, what is he breathing upon? The church. That when the spirit comes, he begins to breathe on God's people. And yes, there will be great and small, rich and poor, slave and free to worship idols, but who comes to the people of God and becomes saints? It says 
No longer slave or free, Jew nor Greek, male or female, rich or poor, but all are now one in Christ. That the whole, they, this is, again, a cheap imitation of those who worship idols. This is the church's calling. Lastly, we see that there's the sealing of these people on one side. And then if we back up in Revelation chapter 7, we see the sealing of God's church. If we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this is probably what most of you have been waiting for in this series, right? What is this mark of the beast? right? Is it a, a vaccine or is it a microchip or is it, is it tattoos? Is it something else? I don't mean to make light of those things, but that's the question, right? It, it's always swirling around. And ever since the early 1900s and probably before that, the question of what is the mark of the beast? What is it? Who's coming? Who is, who is 666? Is it Ronald uh, Reagan Wilson? Is it all of, and it's all of these questions that swirl around. But remember, this is symbolic literature, when we begin to follow Jesus, it says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? We see it here. We see it in Ephesians. And it says that we, uh, in Revelation 7, will have this seal upon our heads. When we begin to follow Jesus, do we get on our heads Jesus and the Father tattooed right there across? I don't think so. I think most of us who follow Jesus, none of us have that tattooed across our foreheads, right? Nor do we have it imprinted on our arms somehow. But what is it? It's the Spirit coming and resting upon us. And so what is it that when uh, someone follows their idols, do they then get Satan plastered across their head or something inserted into their arm? No. At least I don't think so. I haven't seen people who follow their own ways have that plastered across their head or hand. I think it's representative it goes all the way back to the uh, book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. There's this passage that is frequently called the Shema. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. And he says, bind this on your hands. Bind this on your forehead. He says, teach your children when they raise up and when they lie down and when they walk and when they sit. Early Jewish culture, they actually would take little boxes and write little scriptures and they would roll it up and they would put it in these boxes and actually wrap it around their arms, but they don't physically get a forever uh, uh, tattoo of this scripture on them or on their foreheads. What he's saying is this. He says, this mark that seals your mind, it's what you believe. And what you do is the mark on your hand. The mark on the head is what we believe and the mark on the hand is what we do with that belief. How do we practice what we believe? And so the question, are you then marked by believing and practicing Jesus? Or are you marked by believing and practicing something else? A rival idol, Kale often says, we have a throne in our heart. Two things can't share it. What do we believe and what do we practice? That is what will inform who we are sealed by. What do other people see us believe and practice? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Satan will come and he will try to dissuade you into believing and practicing so many different other things. We continue on, verse 18, right? It says, this calls for wisdom. And he essentially says, here's the number 666, right? This, this, this is the sign, right, of what we follow. 
He says it's the number of man. Often left to our own devices, we will worship anything other than Jesus. And honestly, if you begin to study Revelation 13 and you get to verse 17 and 18, this is where the commentaries begin to run rampant, right? Like it is wild, some of the stuff that you'll read. You'll read a lot of stuff. I'm just going to throw out some terms. Gematria, triangulation, numbers like 666, 777, 888, 6 was scared of 7 because 789. Like it just begins to run rampant, right? Props to my friend Jake for giving me that joke to put into my sermon. Excuse me. Love him. It's wild. You begin to read commentaries and you're like, is this, like, what is this number? Ultimately, when you boil it down, and I'll try to make it as simple as possible, oftentimes what we see is God, especially in the book of Revelation, is represented by the number seven. It's complete. It's whole. You go back to the days of creation, right? Seven days to create all throughout the Bible. Seven. Seven I am statements. Seven miracles done by Jesus in the book of John. Like all throughout. It's this number of completeness and this whole number. And ultimately, six always will fall one short of seven. The reality is, is when we begin to worship false idols and, our, and, and, this, and the enemy wants our worship to run rampant and wild after anything but Jesus, but that number is six. It will always fall one short of seven. And he repeats it three times. He says, six, six, six. That number three is complete, right? Oftentimes what you hear is God's number is like 777, seven, seven, right? He's completely whole. Well, so what is 666? It is completely incomplete forever. That ultimately anything we chase other than Jesus has not won. It will fail us every single time. So do you worship the one who is one or do you worship the things that will fail you? Do you worship the one who is one or do you worship the things that will fail you? If you back up to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah will, will speak on the behalf of God. And God says, my people have, uh, they've committed two evils. The first evil is this. They have forsaken the fountain of living water. That they have ran other ways. They have stopped seeking me. But then the second evil was this, is that, yes, they've forsaken the fountain of living water, the only place they could get satisfaction. But they began to dig wells. And those wells hold no water. That anytime we leave out from under God and his river that satisfies, we begin to chase down wells that are empty. That we've tried to dig out and we've tried to patch and we've tried to seal the cracks, but all the water will run out. I want to end our time. It's a lot. But in verse uh, 14, 1 through 5, chapter 14, 1 through 5, Ultimately, I think this is where we get the picture of Christ's ultimate victory in 14, right? The enemy will rise against the people of God. Satan will rise up against the people of God. Yes, he may come, but Christ is one. We see it in 14. Then I looked and behold, on the Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their heads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of the harpists playing their harps. And they, the church, the 144,000, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, and they were found blameless. 
Here's where the scene opens, right? We see these beasts rising out of the sea. The dragon comes against the church, but he's overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. Where is God in all of this? Where is, where is he? It says that Jesus, the Lamb, is standing upon Mount Zion undisturbed and unfazed at the rising of this false enemy, this imitation that is cheap, undisturbed, standing with 144,000. We go back to Revelation 7, like I said, where this 144,000 is introduced. Again, you can get into all the numerology and stuff like that, but essentially 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. All of that to say it's big, complete, holistic, and it's a big number is what he's trying to get aimed in at. Because in Revelation chapter 7, what we're going to see is this 144,000 come and they're with God. And then John sees it. He writes, there's 144,000. And then immediately afterwards, he says, and it was a number too great to count. The multitude of people who follow God. It is a number too great to count. So how can you number it and then just say it's unnumberable, right? You can't. This is, again, symbolism. He's trying to get this point across that God's people, it's this big, holistic, right? Again, every tribe and nation and tongue, people will get to come and they will get to worship the Lamb and they will get to stand on Mount Zion singing a new song. All throughout the scriptures, we get this image of victory and people of God singing new songs. Go look at Exodus, the chariots began to try to chase after the people of Israel as they walk through the Red Sea. And what happens? The water comes back and the people stand on the other side and they sing a song of victory, not because of a battle they've won. David will come and he will fight for the people of Israel and he'll come home and people will sing new songs of victory. Why? Because God has won And at the end of it all, one day we will get to stand undisturbed with King Jesus, the Lamb, on his mountain. And we will sing a victory song like no other that no one else will get to know other than us and the Lamb. And it says, there we will stand pure, redeemed, undefiled, true, and blameless. All because what Christ has done. Ask one more question of the day. Will you sing today, tomorrow, and to eternity because he has already won? Will we stand and sing these songs of praise on Sunday mornings and on Monday mornings and Tuesday and Wednesday night and all the rest? And will we sing to the one who is victorious over all? And will we sing songs of victory? I had a very hellacious week this week personally. The enemy, as I'm beginning to prepare, as I'm beginning to to study and all of these things, very emotional week, a lot of things going on, late night after late night, hard to sleep. The enemy coming against me, and yet, can I stand here this morning and say, God, you've already won. No matter when the enemy comes and rises against me, and no matter how many late nights and bad sleeps and emotional things that I have to carry this week, the enemy may come and try to dissuade me and try to pull my mind in other directions, but will I stand firm and sing the victory song to our Jesus? Revelation 14 begins to close down, and we see this victory come. It's proclaimed by three angels. He says, the time is coming. It's over. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. All those powers of social constructs and government, pop culture, and everything else will fall. And he says, ultimately, God is coming. Judgment is coming. And he ends 
14. So he says there's these three angels come. They proclaim the end. God's victory is coming. And then he ends in 14. He says there's these two harvests. He says there's this harvest of the people of God. He says Jesus, the, the one like the Son of Man, has a sickle. And it says he sweeps across the earth and gathers the grain. We see in Matthew, Jesus talk about the gathering of the saints as that of grain. That one day Jesus will come and he will gather all of his people unto himself. But then he says there's a second harvest. Many of us get excited at the thought that we are part of this grain harvest. That Jesus has died. His blood has covered us. We've won in him. He's coming and he's gathering from the four corners of the earth. His saints unto himself. But the second harvest says there's this angel that begins to pluck grapes. And harvest these grapes. And it says they're put outside of the city where the wine press of God's wrath is. And it says it's beginning to be pressed and it ends in a very gruesome scene of these grapes being pressed and the wine or the blood that flows out is as tall as a horse's bridle and hundreds of miles long, 100 plus miles long. It's this image of, yes, God's people are gathered unto himself, but those who have chose to make their worship that of themselves and idols, there's wrath that is coming. And I don't say that to scare us, but it is a heavy and scary thought to know that like God's judgment does come. And those who don't follow Jesus, yes, that is their fate. But here's the reality. And if you don't follow Jesus, hear this. That there was one who was put outside of the city at Golgotha and who took the wine press of God's wrath in my place and in every believer's place. And Jesus' invitation is to come. It is a free gift. Accept it. What happened on the cross was God's wrath was poured out onto Jesus in our place, forgiving us of our sins. And his blood ran great, and it ran deep, and it ran long, and it ran wide. Pressed in our place. But we win in that blood. The enemy has been overcome by the blood Jesus has overcome with his blood and we are now washed and overcome in that same blood. Let's pray and think for just a few moments before we leave this place. Believer, maybe today for you, the, the action step is, man, what are you chasing after? What are you marked by believing and doing? Where does your worship lie ultimately at the end of the day? Are you enduring? Are you having assured faith. And those are great challenging points for all of us. And will we move into following Jesus, enduring and assured with faith? But I asked the question, as I just posed a moment ago, what harvest are you a part of? Because ultimately one day Jesus will return and he will gather his people unto himself. Are you part of wheat? Are you part of the grapes? Has Jesus been pressed in your place or has he not? And if you would say the answer to that question is he is not. The offer of Jesus in all of the scriptures is come, drink, be satisfied. The gift is free. The punishment has been taken in your place. He just says, believe that I died for you and confess me as Lord. Just follow me. Have relationship with me. It says today is the day of salvation in the scriptures. That, that choice and decision 
can be made, the invitation accepted today. Father, we love you. We praise you. We give you all glory and honor. God, we ask that today that you would move in us, move through us. Father, would you move us to to sanctification, following you? Would our worship be true and would it endure after you all of the days of our life? And Father, if there are some who have not walked into relationship with you yet, God, would they hear the invitation, come, be made pure and clean, be washed. God, would you change the trajectory of all of our lives? Would we stand again, enduring and assured in faith in you, the one who has already won? We pray this in Jesus' name.